Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon, along with uh, today's virtual hosts in the form of uh, some fellow saloners who either made a direct donation to help out with the expenses here in the salon or who paid for a copy of my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation. And those generous souls are Simon P., Jack C., and Carl K., better known as Buck, I believe. So, uh, Simon, Jack, and Buck, uh, hey, thank you ever so much for keeping the wheels turning here in the salon. Also, as you uh, may already know, Dennis McKenna's Kickstarter project exceeded its goal and raised the astounding amount of $85,750 from 873 backers. And I skimmed through the list of names of donors and was happy to see the names of so many of our fellow saloners there. So, on behalf of Dennis, I want to thank all of you for contributing to this important project. Now it's Dennis's turn to hunker down and write the book that we're all waiting for. And while that's a tall order, I have no doubt but what Dennis is up to the challenge. Now, uh, if you're thinking that, hey, it's only been a couple of days since uh, the last podcast came out of the salon, well, you'd be correct. But, as my dear sainted mother would say, there's a method to my madness. You see, uh, this Friday, June 10th, will be the 6th anniversary of my podcast from the Salon. And to celebrate, I plan on playing uh, something new from Terrence McKenna, if I can find it. But since I've got five cassette tapes on my desk right now, and uh, the labels are all in several different handwritings, uh, I think there probably is going to be something there, even though the labels are a bit smudged and hard to read. I can't quite tell what's on them, but hopefully we're going to uh, hear something new from at least one of those. But before I begin listening to them and digitizing them, I want to do this podcast of the second Jonathan Ott talk from the 2004 Mind States Conference in Oaxaca, Mexico. As you may remember, uh, I guess it was about three months ago I played the other Jonathan Ott talk from that conference that the conference producer, my good friend John Hanna, sent to me. And uh, hey, a big thank you goes out to both you, John, and to Jonathan for providing this information for us. Now, the talk I'm about to play had a handwritten label on the DVD that I uh, stripped the sound from, and the label read, Ott on Mescal, which I took to mean that he was speaking about Mescal, and not that he was under the influence of that substance at the time he spoke, which he obviously wasn't. And uh, so this is for those Jonathan Ott fans who have been reminding me via email and Facebook and comments on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog that they are quite anxious to hear more from Jonathan. And uh, now if you remember that the earlier talk that he uh, gave and I played, the one about chocolate, you will uh, recall that his talks are aimed at the biologists among us. And if that doesn't include you, which it doesn't include me, but uh, I'm sure that you'll still be happy about today's program because it's our wonderful biologists, uh, those wonderful people among us who keep coming up with ever more plants that are of interest or ex- worth exploring, whatever you want to say. Uh, for me, uh, even though I don't follow the biology all that well, I really do enjoy listening to Jonathan, mainly from the perspective of reminding myself that our so-called psychedelic renaissance is uh, merely the rediscovery of human practices that extend back for countless years. So now let's join Jonathan Ott and some hardy adventurers on a fine 2004 September day in Oaxaca, Mexico, and learn something about the many ways that indigenous people have been getting high for thousands of years. And I'm going to talk today just about inebriating potions made from um, agave. And you may be familiar, probably, experientially, although this is not supposed to be an experiential conference. They do have uh, tequila and mezcal in the bar. Um, But also there's agave wine, which is called Opli in Nahuatl, or Pulque, which is a post-conquest name. And no, it is not a cactus. It's the family Agaveciae, which is a much smaller family, um, only uh, a few genera. Uh, and it's specifically from the, um, the genus Agave. Agave has about 166 species. 
of which 125 are native to Mexico. It's a strictly a New World genus. And uh, in, in pre-contact times, the extension went as far north as Alberta, Canada, and as far south as northern Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, very soon after the conquest, the agaves were taken to Peru and farther down in the Andes and also to the Old World. You will find many populations of them in the Old World. For example, in the Kathmandu Valley in Nepal, there are a lot of them, but this is all post-conquest or post-contact. Um, but interestingly enough, here in Mexico, they're called magueyes, or maguey is the typical word that's used. This is agave marginata, uh, or or sometimes called agave americana, variety marginata. Um, and oddly enough, maguey is not a Mexican word. It's a Taino word, which comes from the island of La Española, or Hispaniola, and uh, the greater Antilles, Las um, Antillas Mayores. And uh, so we only know them here about the word maguey, but the word in Nahuatl, in uh, the language, the principal language of Highland and Mesoamerica, is metal. M-E-T-L, Metal. And uh, could I have the next slide, please? I can't control it here, I guess. So as I say, this is a godly margin. This is not exactly in its uh, native habitat. Um, and the, the, the cacti, or the agaves do flower, as you will soon see, but they also produce shoots off of the base, which are called hijuelos in Spanish, or uh, buds. And this is an example. This is agave salmiana. Could I have the next But uh, this is agave salmiana again, and you can see this shoot is called guillote, and uh, that's uh, it's starting to flower. And they are sometimes called in English century plants, um, ostensibly because they would only flower once in a century, but in fact they flower in about 10 or 11, 12 years. Uh, and so as a crop, it's a cycle of about that, 12 or 13 years. Um, could I have the next one, please? And that's uh, that same one in full flower. And I, it in that light so you could get good contrast on the flower. And so it does produce seeds. They're very attractive to bees, a lot of nectar for uh, making honey from them as well. But uh, in terms of farming, they're, um, they're grown from seed, but also from those iguelos. And so although it takes uh, about a good decade to develop a crop from these agaves, the first thing you can sell are the iguelos, and so you get the buds off of the side, and those are also um, sold, because it's rather like growing an orchard crop. It takes a long time to cash in. Could I have uh, the next slide, please? And uh, that's um, uh, another um, commercial agave, um, mapisaga, agave mapisaga. So it is a succulent. It's not, uh, per se, um, uh, a cactus. And... Uh, but it's a very uh, juicy succulent. Could I have the next slide, please? And I want to talk a little bit about the history of this first, and then I'm going to mention um, inebriating potions that you're probably not aware of, um, which are based on what is called octli, which is wine of agave. And uh, this is... Um, uh, I'll describe the, the manufacturer now of the... Of the um, of the Oakley or the, the wine, and this is known in modern-day Mexico as pulque. And it's a very much of a degenerated tradition, but there are still pulquerias in the cities and in the small villages. But it, at one time, uh, it peaked really around 1900, the early uh, decades of, of this century, but it was a, a very important beverage. And then um, beer brewing basically uh, competed against it. It can't be bottled. It spoils readily. And it's thought that the name pulque, in fact, comes from the Nahuatl term okli, poliuki, which means uh, uh, rotten uh, agave wine when it's spoiled, when it's gone uh, too far. And so there were attempts even to make synthetic pulque, um, make a product that could be bottled, but it just was not able to compete with beer, and so it has been largely replaced. So you have many examples of this um, in the, in the codices uh, of this orgy, and especially of um, uh, some variants that I will discuss in a minute. But to, to tell you about the manufacture of it, it's really, it's really rather interesting. Um, it, when, the, it, when you saw the slide of the quixote, the big flowering stalk coming up, uh, which happens around, usually not sooner than about seven years, but normally around nine, 10, 11 years, 
So um, that is uh, the first step is when uh, they can see the um, bud starting, this flowering uh, bud that's going to lead to this stalk and eventually to the racemes of flowers. That is cut off, and it's a, in a process that's called capasson, which means castration. And uh, so basically the plant is castrated, and then it's left uh, to scar over uh, for, in fact, the better part of a year. Um, and then uh, the next step is called picasson, which we, with, with, with a sharp pointed implement. And so then after this is scarred over and healed, then the, it is, it is um, per, uh, punctured or perforated. Many holes are made in it, and then it's left again for approximately um, a week. And then the, the next stage is what is called a raspa, which means to scrape. And um, in the raspa, a cavity is made in the, in the center of this um, uh, plant. They, sometimes some of the leaves have to be cut off around this, and then other leaves are bent over to protect it once this process is underway. And so in the raspa, one makes a cavity, which is like a jug-sized thing. It could be a, a dozen, a foot or so, about 25 centimeters in diameter, and about uh, twice that, or not quite twice that, in depth. And so it's a, a hollow is made in the center about this size. Um, and then the, the rest of the process is, is called tlachicada, or tlachiquero, as a person that does this. And so this is using a long board. I'm sorry I don't have pictures of this. But it's using a long, uh, hollow gourd of the species Vaganaria vulgaris. It's a large pipette for suction, to, to suck the, um, the sap out of the middle of this um, cavity. And that's called tlachicada, or tlachicero, is one who sucks this out. And uh, this is done uh, when it's in full production uh, for a period of uh, uh, the better part of a year, uh, many months in any case, and often two or three times a day. And uh, interestingly enough, a, a large um, a, a pulque agave, or okli agave, like the, the one that I showed in flower, the um, salmiana, and there are about a dozen nine species that are used for making these agave wines. And they are distinct, as I will say in a moment, from the mezcal agaves, uh, and the, the, the processing is different. But I will describe that also in detail. And uh, so, uh, one of these uh, large plants, and they get, of course, you've seen them, I'm sure, much taller than a human being and quite large, and they're used for, uh, for fencing, in fact, and they make a very impermeable fence. Um, one of these will yield over its pr production lifetime, over this period of months, in which it is pipetted out two or three times a day, about a thousand liters of, uh, of sap, which is called um, nekutli, in Nahuatl, which also means nectar, it's a kind of nectar, or in Spanish it's called aguamiel. Um, and so the, uh, this nectar-like substance, or honey water, is sucked out with these big pipettes. And then uh, traditionally in, um, in a, a, a place where pulque or ocle was made, that's called a tinacal, the, um, the, the winery, it's a kind of wine. And so, uh, originally it was done in, uh, in, in bull skins, which were called toros, but they made a kind of a wooden tub, which these uncured um, skins were stretched over. And then the agua miel is brought in fresh. It has to be kept fresh, and every day, uh, usually on muleback or on, on donkey, and, uh, and poured into these skins. And then they will make um, a, what's called madre de pulque o sinascle, a starter batch, of the especially pure uh, and much cleaner conditions, they will always maintain a starter culture. And so um, that is added to the fresh um, aguamien or the fresh nekutli. And, uh, and ferment fermentation takes place. Um, most people think of fermentation, because we're from the north, as being a phenomenon of yeasts or um, saccharomyces, like the famous brewer's yeast, saccharomyces cerviciae. But in fact, in the tropics, all, and this is true all over the world, alcoholic fermentation does involve yeast, but only on a very low level. Uh, there are some yeasts can be um, cultured from the, the ferments for things like pulque or ocli, but it's mostly bacteria that produce the um, alcoholic fermentation in, in tropical uh, climates, especially of the genus Thermobacterium. Um, Thermobacterium mobile is especially um, important in the case of, uh, of these agave wines. And so, um, 
The fermentation uh, then in these torgos, these um, tubs, but this is also done in barrels and casks, like a moonshine installation in wooden, open wooden tubs, hop tub type of things. Um, uh, this happens in this area called the, the Tinakam, and um, a large one of these would produce um, something like 1,500 liters a day uh, uh, of, of fully fermented um, agave wine, or okli, or pulque. Uh, so the fermentation takes place over several days, about 36 hours is the, is the mean, and as I say, it has to then be taken fresh to the uh, pulquerias, which is what they're, uh, we're always called in, in Mesoamerica and in Mexico, which are the, the, the taverns where it was consumed. And there's a, a very extensive, um, I actually I made a, I haven't made the copies, but I made a small bibliography both for both my lectures on Xerox and Advanced Out. But there are some books that document this extremely well, um, but unfortunately they're in Spanish, uh, showing pictures of the, of the consumption and the manufacture and so forth um, that have been dug out of historical archives. So, um, and the final beverage is approximately 4 to 7% alcohol. So it's like a weak wine or like a, a beer in terms of um, alcoholic content. It sours readily, um, and it's also very nutritious. And it was a very important item in the diet of, of people from Highland Mesoamerica. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But it contains all the essential amino acids, uh, and also it's very rich in vitamins. Um, many people think of uh, brewing, brewing uh, grains into beers or winemaking fruit, juices, or grapes, as being strictly a ludic phenomenon, uh, something involving inebriation. But we have to remember, um, in the process of, fer of malting grains and then a, a fermentation process to make beers, or simple fermentation of sugar-rich uh, plant extract, uh, this is also of extreme nutritional importance because the process enhances the nutritional value of the original fruit in terms of protein and especially of amino acids. That are of the, of the eight or ten essential amino acids, particularly ones that are not so common in, uh, in plant form. And so it is a very important nutritional phenomenon. It isn't like wasting grain or wasting uh, fruit for, so that people can get drunk. You don't lose, you gain in nutritional value by this process because of the bodies of the organisms that convert some of the sugar into the protein for their own cellular machinery. Um, and those end up in the brew. Um, and so now I'll talk a little bit about this culture and the cultural context of this agave wine. Now, the, the Highland Mesoamericans, um, everyone uses the term outside of, uh, outside of Mexico, the Aztecs, and thinks of it in terms of the Aztec culture. The Aztecs were a flash in the pan. Um, they came late on the historical stage um, in, in terms of being a dominant culture. They were always the barbarians, um, rather like the Goths, not like the, um, the Romans or the Greeks, uh, in terms of, uh, it's a fairly good analogy. Um, when they came around, everyone said, who are these barbarians? The language was not theirs, the, cult, the calendar was not theirs, the art styles were not theirs. In fact, they're not known to have really invented anything except for um, better methods of killing. Um, they were kind of like the, the evil empire of the United States of their day. And uh, very good at weaponry and at fighting tactics. Um, and uh, at appropriating things from other cultures. And so uh, the, the, the stock is called Chichimeca. And uh, the, there is an extensive pre-Columbian history. History here does not start with the conquest in, in the year 1521 is when these so-called Aztecs were really Mexicas, uh, from which the name Mexico comes from, Mexica, M-E-X-I-C-A, and then um, Mexica, sort of people. Um, Chichimeca, in fact, means those who suck from the maguey, or those who suck from the agave. Um, chichi is, is to suck, chichi is to suck in Nahuatl, and still in modern-day Spanish in Mexico only, chichi means breast. And um, it comes from this Nahuatl word, and, and so uh, chichi metal, metal is agave, and so chichi meca means those who suck from the agave. And uh, an agave that produces this, uh, enough of this um, uh, hidromien, or this uh, aguamien, this 
um, nectar for making the wine is called chichimit. It's called a, a, a sucking agave. And uh, we have to remember that this was the entire fountain of life for these people. It was the basis of uh, not only their alimentation, because they, they ate this, um, they also made their drinks from it. In an area where there often is no water, much less pure water, and that's another point about fermented beverages, it's a way of purifying water where you don't have good supplies of water. Um, they also use it to make their housing and their clothing, uh, implements of warfare, uh, ceremonial implements as well. And so it's literally, a, the plant is like the fountain of youth. It's like a fountain. As I say, one of these, in, uh, in these very arid areas, and they don't, even in modern agriculture, they do not need particular attention. They can be grown economically without any agrochemicals or irrigation in the right area. Um, and so uh, the fact that a plant like this, out in a very arid area where these people were nomads also, can produce 1,000 liters of a sweet, uh, nutritious water is a, a fantastic thing. That indicates it was literally the fountain of their sustenance. Um, and so you would have the record of, uh, that goes back about 400 years fairly reliably before the conquest of pre-Columbian history, which has been documented. And this was documented largely by the work of just one man, Bernardino de Sagún, who was a Franciscan friar who lived for 61 years in Mexico and died in 1590, came in 1529 only eight years after the Mexicas were subdued by the conquistadores under Hernán Cortés. Um, and Sagún single-handedly documented this. He was the world's second anthropologist, and he assembled elderly, uh, monolingual, Nahuatl-speaking uh, sages, and he himself trained in a university that they made for, for Indians, which was called the um, uh, Colegio de Santa Cruz de Tlatelolco, um, and it had trained them in Latin and in Spanish, uh, and also in theology. And so he had these scribes that were uh, uh, basically trilingual. They knew Latin, they knew Nahuatl, and they knew Spanish. Take down the words in a transliterated version of Nahuatl, and this survives in an immense work of uh, many hundreds of pages called the, the Florentine Codex. It's only been translated into English. It's never been translated completely into Spanish. And at the same time, he made a parallel book, which is called The General History of the Things of New Spain, Historia General de las Cosas de Nueva España. Um, and this is thought to be a parallel text, but it really isn't. It, it, it covers much of the same material, but not all of the same material, and it's somewhat altered because Sagun later himself had problems with the Inquisition, and he had to somewhat censor, self-censor his work. So... Um, this written record goes back for a long time, and it tells the story of the Chichimecas who went on a long migration. It's very much like the Old Testament, uh, in fact. Um, and the, in, in this story, the Mexicas play the role of the Israelites, uh, this wandering tribe looking, uh, looking for a garden in a desert, um, and looking for a promised land and obeying blindly the dictates of their God, which often tells them to go annihilate this person or that people or, uh, and so forth. But, uh, it's a very similar story. And, but uh, supposedly there were seven tribes of these wandering Chichimecas, and they came out of a cave, which is called, in the north, which is called uh, Chico Mosto, which means seven caverns. And so each tribe had its own little hall in this cave, and they came out into the crepusculum in the early parts of the world of the fifth sun, according to the calendar, which is much, much older than this culture and doesn't derive from this culture. It came from the Gulf of Mexico uh, well before the Mayans. It's not a Mayan calendar either. From uh, It's thought to have originated with the people that we now call the Olmec, uh, who lived in Veracruz and Tabasco, what is now Veracruz and Tabasco. Um, and so they came out into the light of day in this calendar of the fifth sun, and, uh, and began this long migration over many centuries. And then uh, the Mexicas, um, it, it's known by many people that the Spaniards burned codices. What we have here is, uh, is a piece of the codex. This is from the Borgia, Mixtec, from, from here, from this state, not, it's not far from this valley where these were made. This is pre-Columbian. And... Uh, the, uh, the Spaniards, as is known to many people, especially Bishop Diego de Landa in Yucatan in the latter part of the 16th century, but also uh, Bishop Juan de Sumarraga in the 
of the Highland culture of Mesoamerica, the Nahua speakers, burned these codices. They assembled all of the ones they could find and burned them. And so much of this history was destroyed. Uh, this codex that I'm showing you in the present slide is actually a ceremonial one, but some of them are historical. And they are not um, hieroglyphs. Uh, they are comic books in a way. They're like illustrated stories. And uh, they are decipherable, and the history is known that of the few that survived. There are only about 20 that have survived this conflagration. But um, it isn't so much known that the Aztecs or the Mexicas also burned them when they gained hegemony in 1524 over the, um, the other valley, or sorry, 1424, over the other valley peoples. They only had about a little less than 100 years of imperial um, rule in the Valley of Mexico. They uh, assembled all the codices they could find and burned them and then rewrote history to their own aggrandizement. As I said, it's very much like the Old Testament story. And, uh, and so that's why we know so much about Mexicas and so forth, because they tried to destroy everything, but they weren't able to. Um, and so this is a, uh, uh, shows some of the ways that they depicted this agave wine in these codices. So this is the Codex Borgia. This vessel is called the Tochtekona, which means the, the jar of the rabbit. And, uh, and the, the white foam that's spilling over is the octli, that's the, the agave wine. When you see these vessels filled with foamy drinks, if the, the foam is brown, it's cacao or cacao. If it's white, it's octli or, or pulque. And uh, the rabbit jar, the tochtekoma, is generally uh, round bottom, and it sits on a, a coil of cord. Sometimes it's made as a snake. Here you see it perforated with a lance, and uh, that's a paper sign on it on the front, and sticking out of the foam. And that's a deer. It's a, this is a deer pulque. There is what's called masa okli, or deer okli. But I just want to draw your attention in this one to the flowers uh, in the hands of the deer and also the flowers sticking off from the foam. These are flowers. And so what this tells us, this one, this one on the left-hand side, this is a generic potion of what would be called Sochi-Ocli or Te-Ocli. Sochi-Ocli means florid Ocli or florid uh, agave wine. But what it means is that it's visionary. It has an attitude that causes visions because the flower is signals vision uh, according to the brilliant theory of Gordon Wasson where he deciphers uh, Sochipili, um, a, a Nawa uh, cultural icon, which is the lord of the flowers. And, for example, in one of Sagun's colleagues, Molina made a dictionary of Nawa in Spanish in the mid-16th uh, century, and he gives words like Sochinanaka, which means flower mushroom. Uh, but that actually means visionary mushroom because the definition is an, is an inebriating mushroom. And so in the poetry, which we also have about 250 pre-Columbian poems that survive, and I'll say a little bit more about that later. Um, and the, the other potion on the right is kind of an odd one because you see both brown foam and, uh, and white foam, but I think it's made to indicate a mixture of the two. And the ball that's sitting on the top is a ball of rubber because they sometimes added uh, resin from the rubber trees to these potions, and the things sticking out of the top of that are feathers. Um, uh, and you can see it's really clever. He's obviously tasting it and giving the high sign. Yeah, it's red. I mean, it's very obvious. As I say, it's not difficult to read these things, especially when they're full of these potions. Could I have the next slide, please? This is also from the Borgia, which again is a ceremonial. It's not telling history, it's telling this ceremonial story of the, of the raid. And so again, you can see the Tochtekoma, and sometimes it has like a face on it, and it's overflowing with this foamy. You don't have to whip this to a froth. The cacao uh, is done that way, and I'll say, I'll talk about that in my cacao lecture, but this froths by itself. And you can see this is loaded up with flowers, and it's also got mushrooms in it, because you can see the, the little dots uh, uh, on the top. One of the variants of this, uh, as, I, as I say, these cured um, uh, pulkins or oclis were called sociocli or teocli. Sociocli means visionary oclis, teocli means divine or wondrous oclis, like teonanaka is wondrous mushroom, teocli is wondrous oclis or pulke wine. Um, and the, uh, the dot symbol indicates very likely mushrooms. It could, in some contexts, it could be the Olo seed, which means the little round thing. 
But in this case, it is uh, clearly a mushroom because you also have the surviving word in the poetry, nanaka okli, which means mushroom okli, mushroom wine. Um, and so it's also a very beautiful representation. This guy's really falling under the effect of this potion. Could I have the next one, please? Again, this is mixed tech codex Borgia. Uh, within 50 years of the conquest, these were either painted on uh, deer skin or on bark paper made from a fig tree, a ficus, um, which is called um, um, amatl. Um, and uh, just to show you how common these are, this is part of the cal- calendrical representations in this um, codex, so Borgia. And this is the god Sochipili. And so, um, Sochipili, in fact, uh, his name is Maquil, his um, ritual date is Maquil Sochitl, which means five flowers. Maquili is five. Um, and so he's, uh, this, the sign of five is really important. And this potion is also called Maquil Okli, or five Okli, or if you will, the quintessence of Okli, because it was just as in in Arabic culture, the fifth distillation or the fifth essence was the pure substance or the most divine thing. They called this special visionary agave wine maquil okli, or the quintessential okli. It's really remarkable that it's also the number five. But in Mesoamerica, it's the sacred number because those are the cardinal directions. You have the four ordinary cardinal directions, but here you also have the axis which is the axis mundi, which is the world tree, which is the place where the observer sits. Uh, it's the center of the universe for every person. That's the fifth direction. And that axis is called omeyokan, which means the place of duality. And there are, there are two um, deities associated with that, ometekutli, uh, omesihwapu, the two man and two woman. And so it's both male and female, it's... It, it's um, it's not binary, it's dual, it's duality, it's the place of duality, that's the fifth uh, direction. So the hand over the mouth, that shows five, that shows that his sign is five. And this is very common, and the deities which are associated with inebriation have this five thing, and they often have this on the face. These are all things you can read easily in these codices. But you can see again, uh, as a decorative element, you can see here... That's the rat, Tochli. And um, as I said, the jar, the, the vessel is called the Tochtekomantl, the rabbit vessel. And so there you have another one. Clearly with this, this um, agave wine, it has rubber, it has a feather sticking out of the tongue. But I want to draw your attention to these sticks. Again, he's five flower. Makwil Sochi, uh, or Sochi Pili, the prince of flowers. Um, now, the rabbit, the reason all these glyphs around here is it's indicating the different calendar signs uh, that are associated with such a feeling. But the rabbit is really important here, and I'll tell you why. In the migration of the Chichimeca people, uh, the rabbit taught them how to make this agave wine. This is one of the, uh, uh, very often we know that inebriation is natural because it's uh, embedded in the animal kingdom. It's not a human phenomenon at all. And in many cases, the lore is that we learned about this from observing other animals, like baboons and porcupines uh, with Iboga in Africa, like deer and caribou with Amanita muscaria in the north, like llamas with crocodiles in the Andes. But here it's the rabbit that taught them how to make this, um, this potion. And so during this migration, there was a woman named Mayawel, who then subsequently became deified, and a man named Patekatl, um, and this woman observed that the rabbits would go up to the base of the agave and they would gnaw out a little cavity and then they would just leave it and it would fill up with this sweet sap which would ferment in situ right inside this cavity. In, in production, they take it out three times a day before it can ferment. And then the rabbit would come back two or three days later to become drunk by licking up this fermented uh, agave wine. And so the rabbit is the one that taught them how to make it. And so the sign to rabbit, which is omitochli, is what's most associated with, with inebriation, with shamanism, and also with this potion. So you often see the, the, the rabbit uh, associated with it. Okay, could I have the next one, please? Remember the sticks sticking out of the, the jar here. Okay, now here we again have the tochtekoma, the, the, the rabbit jar. And this is, uh, the deity here is, do you have a question? Oh, you're sewing. Um, the deity here is Tasol Teo, 
which is she who eats filth. Um, the the Nagra speakers, the Chichimecas, always deified a certain element that took away the garbage, the, the sopilote, or the buitre, which means buzzard or vulture, was a very sacred animal. And there was a goddess named La Solteo, her, um, that it was she who eats filth, and often the, her mouth is always black, but not in this particular case, it's often black. Uh, but, and she has this thing on her nose, which is the half moon, and, um, and uh, that's called Yakamestli, which means half moon. Uh, and that's the sign of deities that are associated with the moon and with this beverage, because the rabbit is in the moon. There's no man in the moon here. It's the rabbit in the moon, and the lunar imagery is associated with inebriation, and the rabbit of inebriation actually lives in the moon. And uh, so the people that represent him have this half-moon nose piece, which could be made of various materials. But notice how she's... uh, This is my own interpretation, and no one else's... uh, And it hasn't been published. No one else has hit on it. But notice how you, she's holding two bundles of sticks, and you always see these sticks in this in relationship with this potion. One of them is sticking out of the potion. Uh, and notice this yellow thing with a cleft in it on top. This is by agreement of um, experts in this subject, this thing. That is cacao. And you have white foam here, so again, you have the mixture of cacao and this potion, so it's evidence uh, although this is not written down, but we only see it in the codices, that the, the two were sometimes mixed. But the stick is an additive to this potion, and it's a psychoactive one. Um, can I have the next one, please? This again is from That was also from the Codex Borgia, all of those that have previously showed. This is now from the Codex Not All, but it's also from the same area and from the same time. Um, but this one is historical, and this is towards the end of it. There are they're read um, from back to front, like Hebrew, um, and in Bustrophedon, which means like, a, like an ox plows a field, up and down, up and down, like this, from page to the next. Uh, and this is toward the end of it. Um, so I want to call your attention to a few elements. This is a funeral scene. That's a funeral pyre in the front, and a dead person that's wrapped up. In, in some areas here, they did burn the dead, but this was not uh, a especially common thing, and it was really barbarous to them being positioned to burn people alive. Um, those elements. So uh, here we have, um, in the center there, between the two people, that is cacao, and that's cacao with mushrooms. Brown foam and the dot. And it's a different kind of jar because it has feet on it. And the and the, the rabbit thing is always unlike that. But what we have here are cups of the potion, which are just a half a gourd. And so the sticks. This, again, is my interpretation, but very clearly to me. This is showing as clearly as possible the attitude below to, to rub it in. You see the stick. It's always curved. Generally, it has a green, which is the sign of value, jade, or, or a bluish green on one extremity, but in most cases, that's the way In this case, it is not. And uh, they're showing the foaming cup of the potion there with the stick on top to show this contains the stick, and she's putting the stick into it. And some people idiotically have said, oh no, this is the frothing stick that's rubbed between, uh, and I'll talk about this with cacao, but as I said, this does not need frothing. Point one, point two, you have to have two hands to use it. And point three, if, if it's curved like that, it will cavitate and it will spill the thing all over the place. It has to be a straight stick. So, what is this? Um, next one, please. Um, that, uh, or maybe go back to that one and I'll just say a few words about that stick that's before I just mentioned this one. Uh, can we go back to the... Yeah. Okay, that is Okpatli, which means the drug of Okpatli, or the medicine of Okpatli. Um, and uh, Patli is medicine or drug. And so it is the pulque drug. And in fact, today it is uh, still called Palo de Pulque, the, the pulque tree, or the pulque stick, literally speaking. Palo de Pulque is the pulque tree. Um, and that's uh, Acacia angustissima. Okay, now we can show the next one. And that is called Okpatli. And, and 
Okay, this is the 100 peso note, and if you want to take back a souvenir relating, it's better than anything you can get in the souvenir shop at the museum or here in the hotel, because this is a totally visionary uh, piece, and it has an interesting political history, but I don't have time to go into that. Um, Sotipeli, that I mentioned before, is Lord of the Entheogens, Netzawatkoyoku, Netzawatkoyoku, here. And... Um, I said that the, that the Mexicas, or the so-called Aztecs, burned the codices, but Netzalcoyotl wouldn't let them burn the ones in Texcoco. He was not an Aztec or a Mexica, but he was a representative of a central cultural tradition of these people, where of the what is called the ancient wisdom of the Toltecs, or some have called him a Neo-Toltec or a Neo-Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl was a Toltec king. Um, and uh, Netzalcoyotl was... Uh, contemporary with this time when the Aztecs uh, or Mexicas gained control of the valley. Um, but anyway, his people were of uh, the Acolmas from what we call Texcoco now to the east of the Valley of Mexico. Um, and he wouldn't, he had a library and an art school and a major artistic training center. And these people were, they lived rather like monks. They had very simple ornamentation, they didn't run into ostentation. And that's how Coyote was a great poet. Uh, you'll need a magnifying glass. There's even a poem about it in theaters here. There are about 200 poems that survived, 250 pre-Columbian poems, and 30 so were written by him. He died in 1472. Um, and uh, it's really an interesting piece. And when next to the, the bust of him in the portrait, that's him from one of Sagun's manuscripts. Uh, his name means the lion-strong, famished coyote. Um, and it shows the coyote head behind him sitting on a throne and then you have Xochipili and you also have the glyph and the watermark which is very faint here you can see it on the bill it's also small there for the, the culture of Texcoco which is an agave with that jar on top of it that's the symbol for people okay the next one I've got to move along quickly I get stuck on this Okay, so this is Acacia angustissima. That's the stick that they put in. Can I have an action, please? Um, and it's, uh, it's very common in the United States. Uh, it grows uh, from Central America up pretty far north in the uh, west of the Mississippi. Um, and they put, the, in fact, the root. And this was long before the Inquisition was established officially in Mexico. Long, uh, almost 100 years, 91 years before it prohibited peyote and mushrooms and other things like it, this was prohibited because this was the common everyday working class um, inebriant and visionary substance. And it was my theory is that it's a visionary uh, legume. It's in the leguminosae. There are six species of acacia known to contain dimethyltryptamine. I haven't been able to complete my analysis of this because I. I moved, and I still have my lab set up, and I'm just now getting the tree started again on my new ranch. Next, please. Um, and uh, so this is the, uh, the polluted drug. And so they put this stick into the, and I believe in the, in the codices, that's the stick that's being represented, put into it. Now, some people say it's, it's for aiding in fermentation as an inoculum. But they had a separate inoculum. I think it's more likely that it's a secondary compound in this. And uh, this is pretty much obsolete today. Uh, next, please. And, but there were many other additives psychoactive to this that are um, a little better documented. Caliandra in the same family. Uh, it was mostly Caliandra grandiflora and Caliandra loxa that were added to the um, Oakley wine here. This is one from um, from the uh, de la Paz in Bolivia, and I really don't know the species. But uh, Caliandra, we don't yet know it to contain tryptamines, but there are Caliandras that the Schwar, or the so-called Hibaro, add to ayahuasca, for example, in, in preference to the Diploteris carborana, which is a strong DMT plant. And so it's very, and there are a number of citations of psychoactive uh, use of Caliandra. So that's an, a likely another legume attitude that's psychoactive. Next, please. And uh, this is Datura. Uh, this is Daturus Tremonium, which was in fact introduced after the conquest. But there were many Daturas used as inebriants in Mesoamerica, and that was an additive to these potions. And uh, there are two that Sagun especially mentions in Hernandez also that are a little bit mysterious. One is um, 
called Toch de Tepon in the other Itlanesillo, which means something like a rabbit's foot, like, you know, the lucky rabbit's foot that you carry in your pocket. Next, please, it just shows the capsule. This is thorn apple, or the tourist pneumonia. Um, but they were uh, called by various names, Tlapapu, Toloa, or Toloatzin, Toloatche is common today, and they're much associated with love magic, Mishi, they're various species. But uh, this rabbit's foot strange additive, which was especially um, um, mentioned by various chroniclers in the 16th century, was very likely the root of Dottura. Next, please. And this is a favor of Rayana. This is also from South America. This is, in fact, in the Atacama Desert. But ephedras were also added to it, um, broom plants that are uh, uh, under the name tepopote, or tepopote, they call it today. And popote still means straw, in, um, uh, in, in like a beverage straw. But so that was another additive, probable ephedrine containing plant. Um, next, please. And then, of course, you have peyote. And even to this day, peyote is still added to these kinds of beverages in the north by the Tararumara and the Huichol, although they generally make a corn beer, which is called uh, tesguino. That also applies to um, Oakley's. They also make cactus wines as well from cactus fruits. There are many of those. Um, and so uh, it's known that peyote, which was an important additive, these photos are actually from Texas, from what's called the, the Peyote Gardens, very near the, the Rio Bravo or the Rio Grande in Texas. Next, please. I have a few shots of them. And this shows it in flower. And this again was called peyote, and some people say peyote, um, but it really is accented peyote. Cyclone spelled it P E I O T L, which would be pronounced peyote. Uh, and this is actually a rare double, well, not so rare, double flower one, uh, pink. I'll show the flower open in a minute. Next, please. And interestingly enough, these things in the wild will do what's called cresting. They get this tumorous uh, growth that's a little bit, almost all cacti do this, but peyote also. It's a small, spineless cactus. And it's uh, very common in Mexico, not at all common in the U.S., and it only grows in one state in the U.S. naturally, and only in four or five counties. Uh, next, please. And that shows an example of the well-developed cresting. And this is in a, um, a, a shrine garden for a peyotero, or a legal peyote vendor and collector from Texas. Next. And just to give you an idea, this is a three-month-old seedling. Very slow growing. Next. A three-year-old plant. And that's what Diana with a fingertip. Uh, next. And that's the, the flowering plant. And, and this agave salmiana, uh, that one uh, is not the same one that I grew from seed. It's still not that big. Okay, next, please. And then also, I mentioned there was this nanaka okli, or the um, mushroom okli. It's, it's improbable that Amanita muscaria was used in that, but it's possible. This was called sonte comananaka, or nawal, which means the skull mushroom. Um, but it is used as an inebriant to this day in Mesoamerica, but it's mainly known to be smoked with tobacco. There were three basic vehicles for administering inebriating plants, two of which are the subjects of my lecture here, the uh, agave potion, the cacao, and the other one was tobacco reeds, which was a Phragmites reed too, which contains several tryptamines also, that plant, um, five, five uh, hydroxy DMT and DMT. Um, and that was stuffed with tobacco and what are called flowers, or in, or in theaters. That was one vehicle. Uh, and in that case, it was definitely on the muscari that was smoked. And then in cacao, uh, next slide, it would be more likely in the nanaka okli, or the agave wine with mushrooms. It would be a mushroom very much like this. This is uh, Salasabi surlessens, which is one of the big, potent, real Mexican species, although oddly enough, it was first collected in Montgomery County, Alabama. It's never been found outside of Mexico and South America since then. But it's very common here in Oaxaca, and it also grows where I live. And this is what's called the derrumbe mushroom. In Mazatec, it translates as the landslide mushroom. It's called derrumbes um, on the street. So, um, next, please. Uh, and also, the morning glory seeds were added to this agave wine. So you... And that, of course, and everyone knows it by the name Ololiuki, but actually the plant in Nahuatl is Quatsiwitl, which means the snake plant, or Quatl Shoshokin, which means the green snake. 
Olorioke is the name of the seed. Um, and the, the, the seeds are um, uh, little round things, it means, just as they are. So this was also added, and is still to this day. This is mentioned by Schultes first in Nietzsche, which is not far from here. Um, next. And uh, this is from one of Schultes' books, but it just shows that it was, uh, this was the most important pre-Columbian Inebrian, at least what most attracted the Spanish attention. Uh, both Hernandez above and Sagun below um, represented uh, this plan. And it's, it's turbine for both Hernandez, Sagun, that's the little round thing. And that's what the species I'll show next. Um, and this contains lysergic acid alkaloids, so of the lysergic acid amide, simple amide type. Um, and above you see the little round things, and below is the little black things. Um, next slide. And I threw this in also. Um, this is a pre-Columbian type of apiary, uh, because in the Mayan area, this morning glory seed was used in the form of honey to make another ritual beverage, which is called balche. But that is, uh, in Nahuatl, would be called ayotli. They had okli, which is agave wine. Ayotli is made from honey or from some other nectar-type substance. But for the Mayans, didn't uh, have these uh, agaves in abundance in their environment. And they made it, they made their ayotli in the form of balche from um, honey. And these are stingless beehives um, in an A-frame type of apiary. And then they plant, put these around where the morning glories abounded and cultivated the morning glories around them and actually sequestered the lysergic acid alkaloids and the nectar and then made their wine from this. But this also had a psychoactive leguminous additive, which is Mongocarpus violaceus, root bark, exactly like the acacia that's added to the Oakley. And so they put this psychoactive root bark from a Mongocarpus, which is in the same family as the oak poppy or the acacia. Um, next, and I think I only have two more. Uh, this shows the highs up close. The little sections about this long of hollow logs with about uh, several hundred individual bees. They're stingless bees, um, which are, are called cola de cob in mine. And uh, the Mayans call that morning glory Stabentun. And you can still even buy a, a distilled liqueur uh, with anise flavoring, star uh, anise. In uh, Yucatan and Valladolid, in sorry, Merida and Valladolid, Yucatan, and it's called Stabentun. So this name and this inebriating potion survived, and I forgot to put that slide in here. Um, but I'll try and show it with the cacao. Uh, next. And last, I think, and this is the Ipomea violacea, which is the little brown things. Okay, okay. Now, um, everyone knows about tequila. Tequila is actually a uh, a special kind of mezcal. In fact, it's just as champagne is a special kind of cava, like cava is cave um, for, bottle fermented foaming wine from, from southern France or Catalonia, and champagne is denomination contrôlée. It's just a, a regional brand name for, for this kind of wine. And that's the same with tequila. Ten minutes? Okay. Yeah, that gives you enough time. Okay, and so tequila is a, is a denomination controlée for mezcal. And, um, so mezcal is a different kind of agave, and I didn't bring, uh, I don't have photographs of those. But instead of doing this process of castrating the flowering part of the plant, and then making a cavity and, and pipetting out this, um, this very sweet juice that comes flowing out of this fountain of the plant, in this case, when it starts giving signs of flowering, it's cut down. They cut the root off, and then they cut down all the, the leaves or blades, and it makes up what's called a piña or a pineapple. Um, and these things weigh about 800 pounds uh, um, with the typical mezcal agaves. And then that is taken to uh, what's called a palenque. Um, a palenque means like a ring, like a circus ring or Palenque is where you have cockfights or whatever, but it's like a corral ring. Um, and traditionally speaking, it's then baked underground in a kind of a stone oven, like making a sort of a temascal, which is a sweat bath or, uh, or a kind of an earth oven. So a fairly large pit, a few meters in diameter and about the better part of a meter deep, is dug and filled with stones, and then an immense fire is made in this, and it really uh, heats up these stones, which are then evenly spread around, and then these piñas, about a uh, uh, um, quarter to a half a ton at a time, 
um, of these big things, which may then be cut into quarters or something, made slightly smaller pieces, are stuck into the, on these hot rocks, and then agave hay and agave leaves or blades are piled on top of this, and then earth and finally for insulation. And so it's a baked oven, and so this is called baking mescal. And uh, the word mescal uh, comes from mescal metal, which is um, agave uh, um, so No, that's tail metal. Uh, mescalic metal is agave hard, and that's one of these particular mescal agaves. And so mescal metal means the agave that's used for this mescal. And it's, it's bread. It's like baking bread, basically. Sweet bread. And so this was probably a, uh, an important foodstuff before it was an important inebriant, and soon became both. But uh, this is a very extensive area, and it's not just um, the the family Agavaceae, but you also have the Nolanaceae family, which is uh, especially the genus Dazzlerium, especially the species Durangensis. Dazzlerium durangensis and the Nolanaceae. There are 19 species of Nolanaceae, all Mexican, and that's like a little tiny agave. And, and these are also um, used for making this baked sweet bread in the same way, and also for making a beverage, which is called sotol. Um, uh, but that's only one species. It's basically an agave thing. And this goes from the southwestern United States all the way down to Central America, this uh, uh, tradition. But it's, it, it's, not, uh, it's mostly along the Pacific coast uh, in the south. Um, and so, uh, so these piñas are, are cooked like a few days. It could be as much as five, but it's at least one day. Um, in these um, underground stone ovens, and then they're cut up and milled. And the typical mill is like a round, um, uh, a circular ring with a pivot in the center with a sidebar to which a couple of animals can be attached to push the thing around. And then that sidebar is threaded through a big circular milling stone, a big wheel, like this. And so, um, and then the animals turn around and crush these cooked piñas. Um, uh, after they're taken out of the stone oven. Um, and, and then the fibers are separated from the juice, and then that is then fermented uh, to make this um, uh, a wine, an agave wine, somewhat similar. And it's a, a similar process in that um, you use starter cultures as well, and it's basically like making okli or like making pulque. But um, in this case, although there is some evidence that the, um, that the wine is still drunk, almost exclusively where this uh, winemaking process occurred, uh, it became transformed into a distillate, into a brandy, into a brandy of uh, godly wine. And uh, the earliest, the distillation technology was not known here in the pre-Columbian times. Um, and the history of distillation is now pretty well worked out. And it only goes back in Europe about the year 1100. And it's uh, the earliest example about 1550 in Mesoamerica. But early on, they started distilling it with very simple stills. And there, it's, at first, Bumholz and others thought that these were indigenous because one of them was what's probably the earliest form, which was from Mongolia, North Korea, of like a pot with a pan of water on the top and a kind of a rim so that you could, you could drip off the distillate on the sides or to a secondary pot below. Um, and these were found among the Weichel, but now we know uh, pretty clearly that this was not a pre-Columbian technology. It was introduced afterwards, and mostly they're moonshine-type stills made out of copper. Um, and okay, and so the so the the mezcal is then single distilled and bottled. And uh, I had planned to pass them out to the people who tried, but unfortunately the bottle cracked. They sell them in really nice uncooked clay crocks, um, and but. Um, Tequila, then, is a specific kind of mezcal. And originally, it was called um, vino de mezcal tequila when it was first um, commercialized. Um, but in this case, it's a one particular mezcal, agave especially, which is called agave tequilana, or maguey azul, or, um, or um, mezcal azul. It's the blue mezcal agave. Um, and this is only grown around Jalisco. Actually, Guanajuato, Zacatecas, Michoacán, um, at Jalisco, uh, these are all, and Durango, uh, and all the where these other states border on Jalisco, that's a, the legal tequila producing region. But it's based on growing this particular one, and the, the manufacturer originally was the same as I just described for 
um, for Ms. Gull. But in present times, it's done in a much more of a factory-type basis. And so there, you have the same cutting of the piñas and so forth. And then these are, but these are um, cooked in a steam autoclave, a big cylinder, like a huge um, steam autoclave, not in a baked oven. And then they're milled on a type of a conveyor belt roller mill. But then the rest of the production is similar, uh, except that um, tequila is always double distilled. Mezcal is usually only single distilled and filtered. And so the difference that you get is with, with an, a non, apart from the fact you have a different source um, agave, um, and to be legally tequila, it has to have at least 51% of, uh, of agave sugar. Uh, other sugars can be added. So if you want the real thing, it has to say 100% agave on the, on the label. And even then, it won't be, not today because of shortages, it won't be 100% blue agave because they add other agave sugars as well. Um, uh, by the way, when you cook these mezcals and squeeze the juice out, it's about 45% glucose that comes out. So it's a process of baking to convert starches into sugars. Um, and so, uh, and it's double distilled. So the real differences between um, mezcal and tequila are those. It's a different uh, agave source plant in the case of tequila. You don't get the smoky flavor. The agave or the mezcal still tastes smoky because they're still cooked in this traditional way, whereas the modern tequilas are not. It's an esteem autoclave. Uh, it's double distilled uh, in the case of tequila, so you get generally higher alcohol levels, although it's usually diluted down. And so the tequila, and that's basically the difference, uh, only difference. And so the tequila, as it's produced, after the second distillation, comes out approximately 55% alcohol. And it, for export, it's shipped as 55% alcohol, and then it's diluted with distilled water, usually to about 38%, which is 76 proof. Um, it's become an export industry. Now, of the blue agave, there are about 200 million plants um, grown total. Um, only for a few years in the 70s was Tamaulipas, which is a completely different area, through some legal maneuvering, authorized a tequila growing area. But the plant didn't prosper there. And so, uh, although even Salsa and Guerrero, which were the biggest, oldest producers, had to go set up in Tamaulipas. By the time the 90s were there, the Tamaulipas thing was over, and so now it's just, as I said, Jalisco and those four states around it, where you have this tequila-producing uh, um, area. About 50% of the production is exported, and of that, more than 90% goes to the United States. So once again, the U.S. Get, really hogs up this particular anemia. Like the U.S. consumes 90% of, uh, of the tequila, 70% of the world's cocaine crop, um, 50% of illicit opiates used in medicine are consumed in the United States, and fully 34% of the entire output of the world's pharmaceutical industry is consumed in the United States. So, in closing, I'll just joke that people talk about a drug free America. Well, if it gets any freer, we're all going to be dying of an overdose. So, thank you. Yes, question, please. I can get, yes. John, I know you mentioned this in the beginning, but could you clarify again the difference between agave and maguey? Uh, yes, the question is can I clarify the difference between agave and maguey? Maguey is the name for, the common name for an agave species, any agave species, uh, large one, shall we say. And it's from Taino, the language of the people of La Española, or where now is Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, that is uh, the language from there. And that land, there were two million people living on that large island at the time of the um, Colón, Columbus. By 1600, not a single one lived. That language was completely destroyed. But oddly enough, that word survives in modern tongue here. And there are a number of other common words that are uh, from Taino that have spread out all over the world, like canoe, barbecue. Uh, there are three or four, but maguey is a Taino word. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. You know, as I was listening to Jonathan talk just now, it dawned on me that of all the speakers I heard at the Entheobotany conferences in Palenque, 
that Jonathan and Sasha Shulgin were the two that I had the hardest time following, and yet were the only two whose talks I never missed. I can't really describe what it was like when they were on a roll, but it was truly amazing when one or the other of them, uh, sitting in on each other's talks, would begin discussing some point in great detail from both the perspective of botany and of chemistry. Now maybe I'm just easily impressed, but those moments are some of the most memorable scenes of my days at the Planke conferences. Of course, uh, for all I understood about what they were saying, they may as well have been talking in Latin. However, I can assure you that there are a good many of our fellow saloners who are most likely already planning on ways to uh, follow up on the information we just heard. And who knows, their continuing investigations into these plants may be the subject of a future podcast uh, one day, featuring some of the new experts who are filling in the ranks of the academic psychedelic community every day. And now, uh, as much as I'd like to continue visiting with you today... I've got to get busy working on my six-year anniversary podcast, uh, along with another little project that I'll be mentioning in that program, which, if all goes well, will be posted before the end of the day this coming Friday, June 10th. So that's going to do it for now, which means that I'll close today's podcast once again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you're interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear something about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.